This is Leo from Hannah, Connecticut, and you are listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM streaming at newhavenindependent.org. Welcome to Book Talk, where we talk about books. I'm Sid Oppenheimer, and today we'll be talking about the novel Florence Gordon, first with the author, Brian Morton, and then with my readers, returning guests, Sam Purdy and Shifra Sharlin. And stay tuned at the end of the show for our regular feature, a middle-grade recommendation from one of our friendly New Haven librarians. The title character in Florence Gordon is a 75-year-old New Yorker, an intellectual and feminist who prides herself on being an independent, cranky old lady who says what she thinks and does what she feels like, no matter what. She had a little flair of literary glory in the 70s and has dwelled in relative obscurity ever since. When the novel begins, Florence has recently published her sixth book. It receives a front-page rave review in the New York Times Book Review, which vaults Florence back into the public view. The novel unfolds over the summer that follows and expands to encompass the universe of Florence's son, Daniel, a police officer in Seattle who is back in New York City for an extended vacation, her daughter-in-law, Janine, a psychologist who thinks she may be in love with a colleague, and her granddaughter, Emily, an Oberlin dropout who becomes Florence's research assistant. I had the opportunity earlier this week to speak with author Brian Morton, and I'd like to share that interview with you now. Brian Morton was born in New York City and graduated from Sarah Lawrence College. His second novel, Starting Out in the Evening, received multiple awards and was made into a film of the same name. Brian is currently the director of the Sarah Lawrence College writing program. Florence Gordon is his fifth novel. Brian, thanks so much for joining me today on Book Talk on WNHH 103.5 FM. Thanks so much for having me. So, Brian, I'm going to start with a question that you've probably been asked before about this book, but it's the one that kind of rises to the surface for me, so I think it bears asking again. Whenever an author chooses to write about a character who's different from himself in ways that are really central to identity, like race or gender, I think that he runs the risk of being told that he doesn't have the authority to speak in that voice. And I think that's especially true when the author's coming from a place of privilege and is speaking from the point of view of someone who may have been marginalized. So here you are, and you're a white male, And you're writing from the point of view, not just of a woman, but of a feminist. And so that's all a very long lead in to say, did it give you pause to write not just a female character, but a feminist character, one who might herself be kind of offended at having her voice appropriated? (laughs) Uh, I'm not sure whether Florence would be offended, Uh, (laughs) but I think it's simply the fiction writer's job to try to imagine other lives to try to think one's way into other people's points of view. And it's always been the fiction writer's job. Uh, You know, all of the, all of the writers we admire, uh, you know, that that was, that was their stock in trade. Uh, One has to do it thoughtfully. One has to do it with respect. But if you, uh, if you give up the effort to try to imagine what the world looks like from other people's points of view, then you're uh, uh, 
you're not only giving up the effort to write fiction, you're giving up the effort to be a citizen of the world. So what was it about this character that drew you to her? Uh, it's it's funny. Uh, when I write, uh, you know, some characters arrive uh, after a process of reflection of, of what you want to write about. Other characters just show up. And Florence really just showed up. I, uh, I was just sitting around, you know, messing around at the keyboard one day, and she pretty much appeared on the page uh, in a form very close to the final form that she took in the published book four years later. Uh, it's, it's always a mysterious process why you're drawn to certain characters. Um, it's also a mysterious process for me, at least why you can write fluently about some characters. Some characters come much, much more easily to me than others. And oddly, maybe going back to your original question, it often isn't the characters who are closest to me biographically whom I can write about best. Uh, I think when I started out writing, I, I sort of assumed that I'd be writing autobiographical fiction and that it would be both easy and fun to write about characters much like myself. But, but oddly, that hasn't turned out to be the case. Were there characters in this book that you found harder to write? Uh, yes. Uh, Florence's granddaughter, Emily, uh, in, who's, who's about, what is she, 19 or 20 when the book takes place? Mm -hmm. uh, in the first few drafts, she was really just a name on the page, and I didn't think that she was going to become a major character in the book, and I wasn't even that interested in having her become a major character in the book. Uh, and it was only through successive drafts that she became more and more real. Uh, and, until in the end, I think in, in certain ways, I think of her as the moral center of the book. I was just about to say, uh, I see her as the conscience. That's exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it, it was, it was interesting to me and, and, you know, part of the fun of writing that, uh, one character just shows up fully formed and another character who maybe turns out to be even more important, uh, only shows up after years of effort or through years of effort. That takes me to another question I had, which is about the title. Because as you mentioned, you know, Emily in some ways becomes very central to our understanding of the book. Um, and then, you know, two other characters in particular are really important. Lawrence's son, Daniel, and her daughter-in-law, Janine, who really have their own storylines. I mean, part of the story is about their interactions with her, but they have their own things going on. Um, and it's really the universe of them that makes up the novel. Um, but the title is her name. You know, it's Lawrence Gordon puts her front and center. So I wondered about that choice. Right. Uh, in part, that's just because I'm bad at titles. Uh, <laughs> I, I, kept, I kept wanting to find, find a great title for the book. Uh, I guess one always does, right? Um, but, you know, great expectations is taken. And <laughs> uh, for a while, it was going to be called 
opportunities for heroism in everyday life. You know, I was thrilled by that title for around three days until I started saying it to friends and they would go, mm, maybe not. Uh, and I tried a few others and, um, you know, I was called, uh, the document in my computer just said Florence Gordon. And when I finally gave it to my agent and when, uh, uh, an editor uh, at uh, at Houghton Mifflin Harcourt finally bought it. I didn't have a title, and I was sort of sheepish about the fact that I was calling it Florence Gordon. And uh, and they both just said, "Well, that sounds like a good title to us." So uh, we went with it. And and even though, as we've been saying, Florence is by no means the only important character in the book. She still kind of dominates the book in a way. The the other characters are all, to one degree or another, or another responding to her, uh, uh, even if at least one of them is wiser than she is. Uh, she's still sort of the, uh, you know, the the straw that stirs the drink as uh, the sun around which all the planets revolve. Yes, exactly. That's a better way to put it. Um, so so uh, in the end, I was fine with having that be the title of the book, but uh, it was kind of uh, in part because I just couldn't find a better one. So I felt like the book ends up being about a lot of really big questions, like, you know, is human connection really possible? Or what's the line between being selfish and being true to oneself? It sounds like you started with the characters. At what point do you start realizing that these are the questions that you're writing about? Um... That's a really good question. I, I think those kind of questions go hand in hand with uh, with writing about characters. Uh, uh, I, I just uh, this is going to sound sort of silly, but I was I happened to be reading the letters of Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. the other day, and not not that he. Uh, thought that much about art, but he had some line, uh, I can't quote it exactly, but it's something like, uh, he's, he's talking about art and he's saying, you have to see the universal in your particulars mm -hmm. or else it's just gossip. Mm -hmm. And I really like that. You know, if you're, if you're writing about characters and not thinking about the bigger questions or not thinking about how they regard the bigger questions, then it's just gossip. Uh, so so uh, I, I guess it's easiest to talk about in terms of Emily, who's, who's a young woman who's very much trying to figure out her place in the world. And she's, part of what that means for her is observing the way other people move through life and kind of trying to decide what she might take from from the examples that other people have set. But, uh, but as I say, uh, engaging with those larger questions just seems like part of the process of writing about uh, the characters. Uh, because don't you sort of think that we're all thinking about these things all the time? Yeah, my, um, I had a professor in college, he's also a writer who I've mentioned on this show before, Jim Shepard, who is mm. a wonderful writer and an amazing yeah. teacher. 
And he had a quote he used to say, which I think about all the time, which is, we write in order to show how we live. We read in order to learn how to live. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, in the best kind of writing, um, yeah, you're writing to sort of show what you see. But when we read it, we're taking away from it all of these bigger questions. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for those answers, even if we're not consciously doing it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's great. I've heard, I mean, I love his writing, and I've heard such great things about him as a teacher. He's amazing. Uh, yeah, you're lucky to have studied I him. was very lucky. Mm. So I want to get back to talking about Florence a little bit. She is a difficult character. She says herself she is a difficult person, a, a, a very consciously in making a choice to be a difficult person. When you write a character like that, I think you run the risk of alienating your reader, um, is that one reason why you bring in some of these other characters to give us someone to align ourselves with more? Huh. That's, that's an interesting question. Uh, I'm not sure I thought about it that consciously. Uh, I'm not sure I was that worried about alienating the reader with, with Florence. You know, I, I try not to think about the reader too much uh, when I'm writing. You know, I try to just get immersed in the world that I'm writing about, you know, with the, with the hope that if it feels real to me, it will feel real to readers. Uh, but, but that said, uh, in Pretty much everything I've written, I've worked with a s- similar uh, number of characters. Uh, I, I usually have about four characters bothering each other in in uh, in my books, and I it's it's part of the fun of fiction writing to me to to kind of jump in and out of different people's minds and explore how they're l- seeing the very same things in a very different way. Um, so I think I just proceeded that way because it's, uh, my habit as a writer. And, uh, and of course some of the characters are nicer than Florence because some people are, who isn't? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it's, uh, yeah, I, I really loved some moments where we see the same thing from the different points of view. I mean, there's, for example, that moment where um, where Emily gets home from this weekend of debauchery in Boston and is with her father and thinks that he can tell somehow. And, and he's like, she's not meeting his eyes, he's not meeting her eyes, and she feels that he senses mm-hmm. this thing about her. And then we get into his head, and of course he has no idea and no is not suspecting anything about Emily. He's very focused on what he has found out about his wife and thinks that Emily must sense that about him. And I just felt those moments of, were really integral to our understanding. Some of the bigger questions of this, of the book around, you know, how much do we really understand each other? These moments of missed connection, can we ever really connect? Um, and did a great job of really illustrating that. So having, thank you. Having that. Thank, thank you. So, thank you so much. And uh, there, there's one moment in the book that, Maybe is more important to me than than it could be to to a reader. I, in other words, m- maybe I didn't uh, do it well enough or put enough emphasis on it. But there's there's a moment in the book when 
Emily is getting together with Florence. With the cell phone? uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. But just after that, where Florence seems unusually out of sorts to Emily, even 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 for Florence, you know, she seems unusually moody and withdrawn. And Emily's first thought is, oh, she's mad at me about something. Mm-hmm. And then she thinks about it some more. And she thinks somehow she she realizes that actually it's not that. And she senses that Florence must be ill in some serious way. And and that's kind of a rare moment in the book where someone succeeds in getting out of oneself, in really uh, apprehending the experience of the other person. And it it was that moment and other little moments like that that make Emily, you know, as you put it, the conscience of the book, for me, at least. I hadn't really thought about that one in contrast to some of the moments where people really misunderstand each other, but you're saying it really kind of turns that light on in my head. You're right. That is a rare moment when the sort of the intuition works when someone's able to look really deeply at someone and understand what's going on because they're really paying attention to them and not just thinking about themselves. Exactly. Exactly. Well, that brings, you know, talking about Florence's illness brings me to something else I wanted to bring up, which is uh, towards the middle of the novel, Florence is diagnosed with ALS which is, of course, this really shattering diagnosis. Um, And earlier, uh, in in a previous show, we had on author Matthew Thomas talking about his novel, We Are Not Ourselves, um, in which a character is diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's. And one of the questions I asked Matthew was, when when you write a book like this, which and it's a book that's about a lot of big questions, it's about race and it's about class and it's about the American dream, but I think there's a concern that all those big questions get eclipsed and it becomes just a novel about Alzheimer's. I don't think there's quite the same danger in this book. It doesn't, We Are Not Ourselves goes into great detail about his decline, which we do not see here. But there is sort of a danger that, um, that the novel becomes about the diagnosis and Florence's reaction to it, and that that eclipses a lot of other things. So why that decision to give her this particular diagnosis, which is so very all-consuming? Right, right. Um, well, um, I wanted to see how Florence would react to a situation uh, where the sort of psychic tools that had gotten her through life weren't going to help. Uh, weren't going to uh, uh, weren't going to 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 avail her if that's the right word. Uh, uh, Florence has gotten through life by cultivating a fierce independence uh, by refusing to show weakness or admit weakness, and here was a. Uh, an impending situation. You know, she's gotten the diagnosis, but she's still in the very early stages of ALS. Um, Here's an impending situation where she is going to be rendered more and more helpless. 
how does how does someone react to a uh, uh, a problem like that? Uh, and I don't know. <laughs> now I'm wondering whether I should not give give away how Florence reacts. But well, but, I always but, say but, on this show that I feel like we always have to talk about the endings because I don't think you can really understand a book without talking about okay, the endings. Okay, good, good. So we'll I'm give glad. a spoiler yeah, yeah, alert yeah. and go ahead. Right, right, exactly. Um, uh, a novel shouldn't live or die on whether whether it's surprising at the end. Right. Yes. Anyway, um, uh, and Florence uh, can't reach out for help or chooses not to. She she chooses to uh, go on in the same way with the same tools that that she's uh, relied on all her life, which means. Uh, not merely not reaching out for help, but not even accepting help when Emily is is offering help. Emily doesn't know exactly what the problem is, but Emily senses something is deeply wrong and, and wants to help Florence, and Florence just draws back from her. Uh, and, and we learn, um, although it doesn't happen on the page, we learn that Florence chooses to end her own life not that long after the, the book closes. Um, so uh i i see that as uh tragic you know uh but uh, it seemed to me what she would do uh, i was i was conflicted I, about that ending in some ways it's tragic and in some ways it felt like she ended things on her own terms which was exactly the way she lived her life and so maybe that isn't tragic yeah yeah, that's true. When I was when I was using the word tragic, I was a thinking, isn't that a little pretentious to call your own stuff tragic? But B, I was thinking, well, maybe it isn't really tragic. Uh, so yeah, I, I guess uh, I felt that uncertainty too, and I'm glad you did. You, you know, I, I, that was sort of what I what I was going for. There, there's, uh, uh, you know, she lived on her own terms. Yeah, as you put it. Um, there's a great moment towards the end of the book when Emily is talking about something. That she's that that Florence has written about, um, that where she talks about the woman who's the angel in the house who always sits in the draft or you know is always self-sacrificing for others. And uh, Emily, again suspecting something's very wrong with Florence, says to her, "You know, if a woman needs help but doesn't ask for it, isn't she just playing the part of the angel in the house?" And she thinks, "Aha! I've kind of you know humped her." <laughs> and then Florence says, "That depends. Is she trying to take care of everybody else? Is she putting everybody else's needs above her own?" I'd say she's just standing on her own two feet. Um, and again, you know, to me, that was a moment when you, the book kind of leaves it up to you to decide about, uh, you, you could go either way with that one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, that's, that's what I was hoping that a reader would feel. So final question. I want to circle back to what you were saying about how you don't really think so much about the reader um, when you're writing, because uh, there are a lot of moments in the novel, actually, where... I had this high school English teacher, not that this should be a litany of all the English teachers that Sid Oppenheimer has had in her life, but um, <laughs> the great Dr. Shapiro used to talk about moments when the author peeks through the narrative. And I found a lot of, not a lot, but a few of those in the novel, which I thought were very um, amusing. Um, just the second line of the novel, uh, Florence, speaking of herself, says, uh, she says, uh, you know, who on earth would want to read a book about an old intellectual? And I felt like you were kind of poking fun at uh, 
at yourself, sort of saying, all right, if you want to, go ahead and read this book, but I get that, you know, who's going to want to? And there are a few moments like that. But there was one uh, in particular that I was struck by, and it's on, um, it's on page, uh, it's on page 50. And Florence is talking to her longtime editor who has terminal cancer, and she kind of doesn't know what to say to him. And the narrator says, she had a moment of engulfing sadness about this, about the way that even when we're living through tragedy, the language we reach for, the only language available to us is secondhand. And I thought that was interesting because as a writer, for you, even as the narrator, even as the narrator in Florence's head to say that was surprising to me. And I wonder if you can comment on that. Well, now that you read it back to me, I realize that I'm all I'm doing there is stealing from Flaubert. Uh, there's, there's that moment in um, Madame Bovary where... Uh, uh, Emma Bovary is saying to one of her lovers, you know, you, you're, you're, you're the man of my dreams or, you know, she's pleading with him not to leave. And, uh, uh, he simply dismisses what she's saying. He's, he's not interested. Uh, and, and, uh, uh, Flaubert says something like he had heard these words so many times from the lips of insincere, women that he was not able to hear the sincerity in them now. And, and then he, Flaubert has some line about, we, we want to, ha we want our words to reach the stars, but in reality, we're just bears howling inarticulately or something like that. Mm -hmm. So I think I was just semi-consciously like channeling Flaubert there. Um, but the, first or second line of the book, which you quoted, yes, I was completely talking to the reader. You know, you, re you make me realize I've totally lied in saying I don't think about the reader <laughs> at all. Be be because I, I think what I was saying to, to the reader in, in that, on that first page was, look, this is what this book is going to be about. If you're interested in that, read on. If you have no interest in this, put the book down. Um, well, I think everyone should read on. Um, <laughs> I really, really loved it. Um, it's been great talking with you, Brian. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's been fun. I'm Sid Oppenheimer, and this is Book Talk on WNHH 103.5 FM. I want to take a moment to welcome my guests, Sam Purdy and Schiffer Charlin. Sam and Schiffer, thanks so much for joining me today on Book Talk on WNHH 103.5 FM. Thank you, Thank Sid. Thank you. Great to be here. Great to have terrific. you guys back. Yeah, terrific to be together. So let's dive right in. There's a moment in the book on page 144 where Emily, Florence's granddaughter, says that she felt as if she were engaging in a summer research project about how to be a human being, or rather about what kind of human being to be. And it struck me that this could be a metaphor for the book itself that the book itself is a disquisition in a way about how to be a human being or what kind of human being to be. And we're presented with all these different models of humanity. We have Florence, we have her son, Daniel, we have her daughter-in-law, Janine, her granddaughter, Emily, even Emily's on-again, off-again boyfriend, Justin. Where do you think the book comes down on that question of how to be a human or what kind of human to be? What a good question. I did think that the book really admired Florence Gordon, but I know that, you know, that the author didn't feel that she was the exemplary or wisest character. 
But for me, the relationships, the parent-child relationships, Daniel with his daughter, Emily, and actually Daniel was in a certain way, the one who kind of cared, was most attentive to the other people, and I kept my eye on him. I um, I think that there was something about uh, Emily as the, I, I, I like that you had her as the sort of conscience when you were talking with Brian of mm -hmm. the story. I, I agree with that, and I think that there is a moment just sort of in the arc of the story that maybe we'll talk about where I, where I think she sort of takes sort of center stage or there's this sort of transition between her as the, um, you know, the, the daughter receiving everyone else's wisdom to sort of coming into her own yeah. kind of at the middle of the book. But um, I think that there is something, um, where, where, you know, about her uh, as someone who is still figuring it all out and, and taking it all in, but who has this openness to other people that some of the other characters are sort of beyond. Um, Florence, Emily, you know, praises for still being open to learning and open to listening. Uh -huh. But it's sort of questionable the extent to which Florence wants to keep that identity. And Emily is very much open to discovering who she's going to be. And I, I think there's some admiration, at least, that, you know, the Brian, well, still very familiar with him now, but that the book... <laughs> um, you know, encourages us to to appreciate. I feel like the book was itself a bit conflicted about that question of what kind of human to be. I think it sets up these characters as kind of foils for each other. So most obviously, Emily herself contrasts Justin, her boyfriend, with Florence. And she says, she says, you know, Justin's aim in life was to make things that would bring people joy. And Florence, on the other hand, you know, was always outraged, always indignant, um, but there was something about her that was forever hopeful. She's always fighting for, um, what is the quote on page 146, she seemed truly to believe that she was taking part in a struggle that might yet end with the power of universal sisterhood and brotherhood win winning out against the forces of sexism, exploitation, greed. And I think there is a way in which Justin and Florence are presented in contrast to each other, but there's another pair of foils, which is Daniel and Florence. Um, and... Daniel has abandoned the life of the mind. Um, he's moved away from New York City. He, at one time in college, thought he'd be a poet, following in the footsteps of both of his writerly parents. He moves to Seattle. He becomes a police officer, a very blue-collar job. Um, and he continues to read, um, but, but he lives a, 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 what's kind of described as a very complacent lifestyle. And... Janine, his wife, is frustrated at him for what she sees as this like lack of striving. But he really prides himself on his decency, on being a good person. And I, I feel like the book sets up this contrast between is it possible to be someone who's decent and good like Justin and Daniel and simultaneously be someone who is intellectually inquisitive, who's striving, who wants to do great things? Oh, good question. <laughs> Yeah, because it almost, it's almost as if in the book, it's almost set up as an either or. Yeah, I don't know that there is an example of there someone who straddles one. that. Seems like you, you have a choice. You are caring and look out for people and you value, you know, family uh, or you're, you know, brilliant and a little bit of an ass. Unless Emily is the right. one who combines Except the two of them. She's so young that she never really has to 
face really the kind of complexities that the adults in her life have. I mean, her most, look, she figures out that her grandmother is ill, but she, there's no weight on her to do something about it. So she doesn't ever manage to confront her or figure it out. And there are no consequences for that. Whereas, um, and I guess you could say the way that it is the either or, that that's the thing I most resisted in the book that Florence Gordon was so much the or without any either, that she was so much the, um, so much ideology, so much, you know, admirable intellectual energy. And you did see this sort of feeling, but her lack of emotional attachments, it seemed to be her metier, you know. What did Emily learn from her grandmother? How to how to say no to Justin. And I mean, she should have said no to Justin, but she didn't learn from her grandmother how to help her grandmother. And or how to help Justin. Yeah, ditto. Yeah. On page 230, uh, Emily, uh, excuse me, Florence. No, one more. On page 230, it's in uh, Florence's voice. As she waited, she was surprised by how happy it made her to know that Emily was here. She was damned if she was going to let Emily see that. Yeah, exactly. Why? I, I, I was so. I, I felt like that just went for me a step too far. It was so utterly foreign that you know this relationship between the grandmother and the granddaughter. You know that there would be this actual desire to make very clear you have not gotten into my heart. Um, that that felt a, a step too far. Yeah, and yeah, I think that gets to the question of whether. Florence's model of feminism is one that in some ways is patterned on an, an idea of maleness, right? That it's a kind of feminism that prides itself on emotional detachment and lack of connection, which rightly or wrongly may be her interpretation of what it means to be male. And it's interesting because she herself doesn't see it that way, like very clearly. You know, she in fact at one point is talking about, she's written an essay about Elizabeth Cady Stanton and she says that, uh, and she's at she's speaking about it at a at a book talk, and she says the audience doesn't seem to like um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton because they uh, they feel that she is too male in her insistence that we are ultimately always alone. Um, but she contrasts that she says they seem to not like her, not me. They don't like Stanton, but not me, Florence Gordon, because they see Stanton as insisting on this belief that we're all ultimately alone in the world. But I thought, well, Florence, I think embraces that same ideology that she seems to feel ultimately um, you are alone. And yet she doesn't seem self-aware of it because she seems to believe that she has this like circle of female friends. She has this whole, you know, dialogue about the importance of female friendship, but it seems very empty. And then she has these other moments where she talks about how even her closest friends don't know her. They throw this surprise party for her, which anyone who knows her would know she would not want. Um, and yet she never seems to connect those things to think, um, you know, what is my true ideology or what is my true sense of, you know, what is feminism? Yeah, it's so funny. I mean, I've given a lot of thought to that particular um, issue of how how Florence Gordon is, um, uh, the, what kind of feminism she represents, that she's supposed to represent the second wave feminism. And I think I was of two minds of whether he was sort of doing this disservice to second wave 
<clears throat> feminism or whether, you know, just his representation of Florence Gordon was a little flat, as Sam said, you know, that moment where I feel so happy to see you, but I'm not going to let you know um, and not remembering her granddaughter's name. So as a representation of second wave feminism, I think it's not very sort of flat. Um, so something's flat there. And there was a revealing, and along those lines, it was a revealing moment when there was that, you know, Emily getting the chance to see her grandmother in action with the protest against right. the Bloodmobile arriving on campus at NYU. And Florence says, uh, at, before she sort of steps in between the police and the protesters, sometimes it's amazing what a sobering effect an old lady can have, particularly an old lady with a cane. I mean, she loves yeah. sort of having there be this total dissonance between what she gives off to the outside world who has no idea who she is and then what she um, ultimately presents as once she opens her mouth or, or takes a move. So I, I think, <clears throat> you know, she uh, at least leans into the sort of contradictions um, that, that, that still exist in society. Yeah, and then there was that moment where the younger feminist speaks and attacks them for being the second wave feminists for being puritanical and Emily says, Oh, that's, you know, that's not fair. They weren't one dimensional like that. They, you know, they partied in their day, blah, blah. So. You know, the book gives a lot more time to that scene of the protest about the blood mobile where they're at NYU and um, there's a protest organized by the students because the, um, the blood mobile won't accept donations from gay men. Um, and, Florence and Emily go down to listen to the protest. Florence's takeaway is that we should not prevent the bloodmobile from entering, but we should make it nuanced. We should raise awareness, but then joins in the protest because that's the consensus. But I was actually more struck by a very, very small moment in the book, which is when Emily and Florence go into Dwayne Reed, the drugstore. Yes. And there's a long line of people waiting for the cashier. And this, you know, this man in a suit who looks like an important investment banker type. Probably Donald Trump. Right? Someone, Donald Trump asked, yes. Um, <laughs> it, it sees that there's two cashiers and there's one line and decides he's just going to go in front of the other cashier that must be, there's no line in front of one cashier and he just cuts the line. And the woman who's in front of the line, this older, tired woman, sort of stares at him but doesn't say anything. And Florence, who is not in line at all, stands up and says, there's... Don't cut the line. Um, and, uh, you know, and he curses at her, but ultimately leaves. And, and, and the woman who's at the front of the line who didn't say anything um, says, thank you. And Florence says, stand up for yourself. Yeah. you And I was so, that to me, that was an incredibly revealing moment of Florence where she's doing something kind, but she's not doing it because it is kind. She's doing it because she always does what she believes to be right. And... I, and I, and I was, you know, and I guess I, I questioned, you know, do we valorize that sense of sort of that you always be true to your principles and sometimes that will mean that you're kind and sometimes it will mean that you're cruel, but it doesn't matter because you are always true to what you believe. Should we endorse that? Or, I mean, at the end of the day, I don't like her, right? Like at the end of the day, she is not. No my model of the kind of human I want to be. But 
does the book in some ways endorse that model of human behavior of like, be true to your principles. That should be your guiding force versus this, you know, sort of the more Justin model of the person who is, he is, he is, he is first presented when Emily first meets him in a flashback in high school uh, where there's an older woman um, at the library who's having trouble accessing her email on the computer and this high school sophomore very gently, very kindly, very patiently helps her. But in the end, you know, we see Justin deteriorate. We see his mind essentially crumble. He's struggling with mental illness. He's struggling with being in this harsh world. He can't make it in the world. So that model of sort of human kindness is presented as one that is defeated, whereas Florence strides right off. And in some ways, it's like even ALS can't defeat her. She will defeat it because she will kill herself before letting it kill her. Yeah, I, I again, I come back to Daniel, who I think is is a somewhat richer character. Yes, he's a police officer, but as he says, no one seems to realize that actually what he's doing is the sort of social work dimension of police work. He's, I mean, his reaction to his wife's affair, her reaction, how, how she reflects on their relationship, the sort of tie between them that they're also each pulling against, was to me the... That, that was a real strength of the book, that, that relationship and, and that Daniel character and his relationship to his daughter. I mean, he, it was as if he chose kindness or over ideology, if, if you want to put it like that. I, I felt like he was a model of that. I was really struck, and I thought I would turn us to a passage near the end of the book, um, when Janine realizes that Daniel had been in the hospital uh, when she was with Lev, um, she has this sort of internal uh, realization. This is right before the end of the book on page 288. Um, the, you know, she says, you, you travel side by side through the life you share, and you come to think you know each other all too well. But if each of us enters the afterlife alone and is asked to give an accounting, asked to speak of how one lived and what one lived for, then the accounting Daniel gave of his life might involve trials of which she knew nothing, sufferings of which he'd never spoken, and that had left no outer mark. That, uh, for me, was sort of the was <clears throat> um, sort of the first of all the defense of like why I wrote the, this book this way, right? Like we had to write this book in this sort of third person, psychologically all knowing, but having no idea what's in other characters. Um, but it also sort of spoke to this idea of. Uh, the, the incomplete view that all the characters have of the other people in the book yeah. and that we, we are left to sort of decide. I, I, I would side with you, Schiffer, on that question, the previous question of, of whether, uh, of Daniel as perhaps this sort of middle, you know, occupying somewhat of this middle space of that Venn diagram that we're crafting. Um, but I think that this, that, that paragraph for me, I noticed you sort of nod, Sid, at that, at that paragraph. Did that also Yeah, I wrote to that down too. Um, because I thought that really spoke to a major theme in the book, which is the way that even those that we are closest to don't know us fully. Mm -hmm. Um, and that in fact, I, you know, in, on page eight, so the book sort of starts and ends with those same things on page eight, Florence, uh, speaking the third, third person speaking of Florence's mind says it was astonishing how little people knew each other, even old friends, um, and that your close friends are rarely the people who ask the questions that mean the most to you. Maybe they'd never ask because our ideas about friends and loved ones congeal over time. We see them in a fixed and limited way. 
So we come to imagine that they themselves are fixed and limited. And so it's a very, it's a very depressing uh, notion of humanity of that even the connections that we think are the most uh, valid, the strongest ones are ultimately incomplete. I do wonder though, whether these characters are uh, sort of typical in their the level of their communication with the people around them. Yeah. Um, and when I say wonder, I don't think that they were. <laughs> um, you know, I, I sort of went and thought back, sure, we only saw a slice of their lives, but it, there wasn't sort of a moment or, or a series of conversations that we saw no. between, right, between Janine uh, and Daniel, for instance. Right. I mean, Janine and Daniel, there's the, there's the part where they reunite after having been, he was in Seattle, she was in New York, and they're getting accustomed to one another. And what signifies their click is like when they get back to the groove of meaningless banter. Banter, that was just the word I was going to say, which is it seems like Janine and Daniel's whole connection is like based in this like way that they sort of banter with words. And and Janine even says like that they play well together, but you never see them having a conversation about, you know, her dissatisfaction with the fact that he will never go out and do things with her and he only sits and reads or, you know, his, when he learns of her affair, he never confronts her about it ever. <laughs> um, and I, so, but we, I don't feel like we're presented with a contrasting model of, you know, where communication can and does happen in ways that are successful. Um, you know, to the extent that Emily tries to have those conversations with Florence, she is very much shut down. But she tries. And, and I, I mean, I think that there, there is, um, you know, she could be sort of the, um, the one who sort of goes down on the cross of, you know, trying to open lines of communication, trying to, assuming, and I, I'm not going to find the line as quickly as I want to, but, you know, why she wanted to just get to this point with her grandmother, uh, Emily said at one point, where she would just open up to her. Um, and I think she said, be happy around her. Um, you know, she tries and she tries, and then she eventually goes sort of the Florence route of, as she called it, is it sadistic maybe? No, it's not. Um, but Florence loves that Florence ends up well I shouldn't say loves it but ends up respecting Emily's sort of right fight um which it goes does go at odds with the sort of caring let's find you know a, a, a way to talk about what's going on um that that didn't work but Emily I think gave it gave it a real shot you know I wanted to get back to Daniel as possibly the sort of model of decency I was struck by the fact that when Daniel learns, uh, Daniel's reaction when he learns of Janine's affair, in contrast to Florence's reaction to Saul's infidelities, which are mentioned in passing, Saul is her ex-husband, but she knows even when they were engaged that he was cheating on her. And she sort of, she sort of puts her, you know, she puts up with it. She's like, that's fine. I get what I need from him. He gets what he needs from me. He wants to go and have affairs. That's okay. She never blames herself. She never asks herself, like, am I lacking in any way? It never leads to a self-questioning. And Daniel's reaction is exactly the opposite, which is instead of being angry with Janine, he feels like he must have let her down in some way. And he spends all this time questioning himself, right. 
about how he has failed. Um, in some ways, I thought that was an, a, a flipping of what you would expect from normal, normal gender roles. Mm -hmm. That Daniel's reaction is a more quintessentially female reaction of sort of turning that turning inward to blaming oneself and, uh, and Florence's reaction is a more male reaction. Um, but you know, in the end, uh, at much as with Justin, you know, Justin crumbles and Daniel is cuckolded and, um, and Florence gets a rave review in the New York times book review and totally enjoys it. Her friends who are like, it must be so hard being famous and there must be all these things. She's like, nope, this is great. Right, um, we never have, you know, in some ways, I feel like the book wants us to come down on the side of not wanting to be like Florence as a model of humanity. But at the same time, things turn out pretty well for her. She doesn't seem to have regrets. We never have a moment where we see her regretting she doesn't have more of a relationship with Daniel. Yes. Um, she seems to end her life on the terms she wants to end it, even if she would, wishes that her life wouldn't end. Um, she has developed a relationship with her, her granddaughter that does seem to if only internally, give her some joy. Right. And it's on her terms, even if it's not the relationship Emily wants, it's the relationship that she wants. And so we never, you know, I kind of, you kind of want her to, to fail or falter in some way to show that this way of being in the world is not the right way to be. And we're not given that. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I also thought that um, it was sort of a love letter to Florence Gordon. You know, she's the fact that it begins with that line, oh, you know, I'm just, who cares about a 75-year-old feminist? Well, um, I don't know. Like, this whole book cares about her. And in the and she is only, right, she's only her, she's only shown kind of being successful in a certain way. You know, when she stands up the blood mobile and it generously supports the people whose opinion she had argued against, I mean, every, I think in the book holds her up as someone who's quite terrific. Yeah. The doctor, remember the, all those little conversations with her doctor? Mm -hmm. Her doctor just sort of adores her, my favorite patient. She's not egotistical like other writers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think in the... And I, mean, I had that same question. All these people seem to admire her. All these friends put up with her. Yes. All these friends are like, oh, she changed my life. And I kind of couldn't help wondering, why do, why do you put up with her? You know, when, right. she, when they throw this big surprise party for her and she walks out, you know, like, oh, that Florence. It's right. like, what? <laughs> exactly. I, you know, I, it was hard for me to see what was, what they were admiring her, what they were drawn to in yeah. her that made them continue to feel that she was the person around whom they wanted to be. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that Emily probably is the one who gives us the best insight into that because we actually see her continue to go back and sometimes seek out her grandmother. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that she, there was actually a moment at which she sort of said that she wanted her grandmother to be the same sort of uh, difficult to connect with person uh, you know, that, 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 that she'd always been, there was some draw about being around someone who just seemed to kind of say, I, I am, I am in control of my own life. Um, and I will be the way I want to be, uh, that, that drew people to her. I would also just add, we, 
you know, didn't get to, there were a few flashbacks, but we didn't see the first 75 years of her life. We didn't get to kind of experience the, the, the moments when those friendships perhaps were formed in the heat of battle in some cases. Um, and so I think the book even provides cover for us uh, believing that there was something really important that happened there that we aren't seeing, uh, but that did form. Yeah, I mean, I like that idea, though, that I think many of the people in the book, if not all of them, feel that life is out of their control. And looking at someone who seems to feel that life is within her control mm -hmm. could be reassuring, even if, in many ways, what it takes to get there is not what you'd be willing to sacrifice. I'll just end with, there's a moment when Janine is speaking and she says that as a psychologist, she feels that all she can do is accompany people through life's disasters. Yeah. And in a way, I felt like that's what the book was doing and was telling us that we were sort of accompanying these characters through life's disasters and by being present and witnessing it, that also had meaning. It was a great book. Yes. It was I... a fun, it was a, a, a very, everyone I've recommended it to has loved it. Well, everyone should read it then. Uh, <laughs> Sam and Shifra, thanks for joining me today. It was great uh, having you as always. Thank you, Sid. Great time. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Sid Oppenheimer, and this is Book Talk on WNHH 103.5 FM. Next up, a recommendation from New Haven librarian Martha Bloom. Hello, my name is Martha Bloom, and I'm a Young Minds Librarian at the New Haven Free Public Library. I'm here today to tell you about the book Because of Winn-Dixie by Kate DeCamelo. You will never meet a more lovable dog than Winn-Dixie. Here are ten things about him. One, he has a pathological fear of thunderstorms. Two, he likes to smile using all his teeth. Three, he can't stand to be left alone. Four, he likes to meet people. Five. Well, maybe you should read the book to find out the rest. The best thing about Winn-Dixie is that Winn-Dixie just can't help bringing people together. The thing is, so many people just don't know they need Winn-Dixie until he shows up. Like Opal's dad, the preacher, who can't face the fact that Opal's mama left them when Opal was a baby. So he hides like a turtle in his shell, never sticking his head out into the world. And Miss Franny Block, the librarian, whose life is like the litmus lozenges candy she hands out, a little sweet, a little melancholy. There's pinch-faced Amanda Wilson who carries with her a sadness too heavy for a child. And Otis, the ex-con at Gertrude's pet store who charms the animals with his music but is terrified of people. Because of Winn-Dixie, all these lost souls find themselves together at a party at the home of Gloria Dump. Gloria Dump has a tree in her backyard filled with bottles that are the ghosts of her past. She's the first to tell Opal that you can't judge a person based on what they've done. It's who they are now that counts. Then a thunderstorm comes up unexpectedly and Winn-Dixie disappears. As Opal and her daddy spend the evening trying to find him, they learn that you can't hold on to things that want to let go. In the words of Gloria Dump, you can only love what you got while you got it. If you like happy endings, you'll love this book. It's also a great movie but read the book first. As a reminder, all books discussed on Book Talk can always be found at the New Haven Free Public Library. I hope to see you there soon. Thanks, Martha. On our next show, airing February 10th, we'll be talking about novel Bellwether Rhapsody, first with the author, Kate Reculia, and then with my guests, 
returning reader Alfie Guy, and longtime listener and an amazing author in her own right, Chewy Sutherland. Go get it from the New Haven Public Library today and start reading. Then post your thoughts and questions on Facebook and Twitter so we can make them part of our conversation. Have ideas for what we should be reading after that? Email me at booktalkwnhh at gmail.com. Until then, happy reading. Thank you.